Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on this cold and frosty morning. It is freezing trust us we've got this kind of well it's i guess a big old house and man you crank them radiators up and it's still cold so i hope everyone is a little bit warmer than i am so yes oral delights comes around once again you know we are 53 let's get it right there year and one week old and to celebrate we have i'll give you a little heads up what's going on in the show we have the editorial by my good self We've got Portly by Laura Winter. Flash Fiction comes to you by Jay Lake. We have the new movie talk by Rod Barnett. We haven't actually got a name for it yet, so if anyone wants to email us in with a suggestion, that would be great. We have a, a very special announcement coming up. We've got the Sofa Note Awards, and to tell you all about that, we've got Mark Borman. That's coming up soon. Main fiction tonight comes from Ted Kosmatka, the Kraken story called Dead Notes. So we have a fun-packed show for you today. I hope you will stick around and enjoy the show. So yes, welcome to Oral Delights. We'll jump straight into the editorial by my good self. It has been rather a nice week since that we celebrate our first birthday on Oral Delights. I tell you what I got, well, just, it's on the top of my mind now, and we got, I got an email a day about it. And I'm wondering, I don't think I probably will, but it'd be just nice to get everybody else's views as well. Would you like, or would you think, or just keep it the same as it's going, separate and split the shows so they're each on their different feeds. So you have Oral Delights actually as a podcast and it runs itself. You have the original show and it runs itself. 
I mean, a couple of reasons why I don't go down that way. I would, if everyone thinks that's the way to go, you know, I'll certainly do it. One is it costs a bit more. <laughs> well, each feed will have to be kind of basically hosted by someone like Libsyn. But the main thing is, if it's all grouped together, this is my feeling, is, you know, these shows are now getting paid or some of them are getting paid by Audible. And then if I kind of split everything off and then the kind of audience figures goes off into separate feeds, then I might not be able to kind of get my Audible quota hit, if you know what I mean. So... Anyway, drop us a line, see what you think about that. Anyway, it's just a thought I'd put that out. What else have we got? Well, one of the prints has already been snapped up. Not snapped up, but reserved. I didn't actually get them into the shop. So much going on there. But there's there's going to be five prints of that actual cover that Skeet did, all signed by our good selves, me, Skeet, and Michael Moorcock. One of them has been pre-ordered anyway. So, if you wouldn't, there's only four. Time to Time to get going. <laughs> Again, we have by Rob Barnett a new movie talk. And again, send in if you've got a better name for movie talk, send in. And we're going to listen to Rob today tell about films. And he'll just kind of he'll get settled in this week. And then, you know, months' time, he'll give you another one. So looking forward to that. And Mark Borman, we have the Sofa Not Awards. It, Mark dropped us an email last week and said, you know, like since the first Michael Moorcock and this Lundy. Port and Ivory, the 52 shows. Why don't we do each... I'm saying each year, you know what I mean? Why don't we do... He says, just have like a, an award. You know what we'll call them? Like kind of the Sofa Notes Awards. So look out for that. Listen to what Mark's got to say. There will be some emails sent out or it'll all be on the forums, but I'll talk more about it when it's up and running. And the main fiction comes to you by Ted Kuzmatska. Now, if you remember Matt, our good friend Matt... And he's fiction crawler. He actually mentioned the story Dead Notes. And I thought, oh, get it, you know, get it. Try and keep with it and get it played on the show. So this is it. Emails to Matt if you don't like this story. <laughs> so there you go. That is the little editorial. We'll, we'll dip straight into a little bit of poetry by Laurel Winter. An Eccentric in Orbit by Laurel Winter. She achieved escape velocity, running for a bus, hair streaming behind her, papers fluttering away, all those resumes describing her as a series of achievements and occupations, career goals and mission statements in chronological order. She passed over the bus, choked on diesel for a second, avoided a bird which eyed her suspiciously, no doubt noting her absence of wings, but she didn't seem to need them, and no one else noticed that she could fly faster than a city bus had no more need for schedules, transfers, pigeonhole resumes. The earth crawled along beneath her, diminishing, its people becoming animated dolls, cars, and buses, the size of her hand, the size of her finger, shrinking into invisibility until a whole city was a toy she could fit in her pocket. She missed the interview while flying over the ocean, Supposed they gave the job to someone from Topeka who wore a navy blue suit with just enough heel to make her legs pretty, who always made bus stops on time, never flew away. Let her have the job, she yelled, and the profit-sharing plan, and the HMO. She didn't need to work, unless she happened to come down like Mary Poppins to the perfect position. Except that got her wondering about orbital decay. And what was keeping her up here? 
since there had been no solid rocket boosters, no second stage, nothing but her own sturdy legs pumping as the bus pulled away, nothing but a desire to get somewhere, somewhere better than the upcoming interview where someone would no doubt be wishing she had less thigh and more breast, like a good roasting chicken, asking her to account for her time during the spring and summer of 92. And here she was, flying in great circles around this perfect planet, only worrying a little about getting back down. After a few more circuits, watching the night creep across the continents, cities blazing into electric existence, she decided it was time to go home and find passion to live by. Adjusted her trajectory to impact Minneapolis, and, oh, that re-entry burn. And there you go. Thank you very much, Laurel Winter. Diane Severson as well. A star, thank you so much. Jumping straight into the flash fiction, it is by none other than Jay Lake. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up of Jay Lake. Lives in Portland, Oregon, where he was working on numerous writing and editing projects. His 2008 novels are Escapement from Tor Books and Madness of Flowers from Nightshade Books. Jay Lake is the winning author of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. Got four novels out and over 200 short stories. Mr. Lake has been described as one of the rising stars of science fiction and fantasy genre. Since first appearing on the scene in late 2001, he's seen over 200 of his short stories published along with three novels and this new one, Escapement, out as well. His work has received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly and Booklist, and he has been significantly recognised in the kind of science fiction and fantasy field as one of the kind of top writers out there. So we have a few stories by Jay Lake coming in the near future. Do listen out for them. But for now... A Conspiracy of Dentists by Jay Lake Teeth fall like rain, the old house weeping mouth ivory, enamel the color of tea with overripe banana spots. Tongue and groove ceilings flip open as if they were Venetian blinds, feeding the downpour, while sink drains gurgle and burp, avenging a century of toothpaste and spit in a fountain of molars, canines, bicuspids. Granddaddy was an old man all his life, born wrinkled and never quite smoothed out. There's one picture of him as a child, pudgy and mean, glaring over horn-rimmed glasses that dominate his face and surely draw beatings from the other boys like an outhouse draws flies in the heat-stunned East Texas of his childhood. Nothing more, then, no evidence of his existence for years, until he graduates from dental school, that transcendent moment captured in a hand-tinted photograph him already over-large with a thin-lipped grin and an expression of determination steely as his jaw-cutters and wrenches. The tints make him look like a badly prepared corpse, something between Easter pastel and denture pink, a color no human has actually ever been. 
The rain of teeth seems to be slowing now, though a few continue to trickle down, pooling on the floor of the old house like New York snow. I can walk, crunching, over the enamel drifts, Scott searching for the South Pole, or the prescient Titus Oates losing himself in the snow. Had I a telescoping aluminum probe, I could search the drifts for evidence of an earlier era of carefree childhood that my grandfather knew only in the womb. I remember him mostly as a girth, reeking of tobacco and astringent, a great flannel zeppelin motoring slowly through my young life with a fierce iron love, only a degree removed from cruelty, all in the name of peace and quiet and a little rest for my ailing grandmother. He would put his fingers in my mouth, great as Polish sausages, slightly salty, stained from his pipe, his huge wrinkled face rising over my field of view like a harvest moon, and asked me if I wanted him to pull that loose tooth. Afraid of pain, I would shake my head and mutter shy denials, until a grin split his old face like a melon, and he floated away over the horizon, untethered and bereft of any ground crew. Downstairs, I sit in the mottled light, streaming through the stained glass windows of his great house. Grandmother's ghost whispers to me from the polished floor, salvaged a generation ago from a distant church, while within the walls the great pocket doors creak like sails in the wind of granddaddy's passing. The teeth are fewer here, scattered carelessly, piled up in small drifts around the grandfather clock, stuck in corners, aimless wanderers uprooted from their jaws. Then I find his uniform lying on the stairs next to me. He was in the army, and some fraternal order as well. But these epaulets speak of a different era, comic opera kingdoms of Prussian marching bands. The uniform is white, with gold buttons and lace and a chest full of suspiciously fanciful medals. And even though I too am large and growing into an airship of my own, in keeping with the family tradition, it would fit me like a mess tent. Daddy is in the kitchen with Uncle Lloyd, quiet voices discussing some estate problem. Mom is upstairs, gathering teeth with a snow shovel and an angry sigh. I am alone with his uniform, this great acreage of white linen and canvas that smells, like him, of old tobacco. It does not fit, I tell myself, slipping a leg over my jeans. I will never be so large. The cuffs flop down around my fingernails. A conspiracy of dentists could meet in here with me. I fasten the gold buttons, each gleaming as if fresh from the jeweler's clamp. Seized by some dim instinct, I walk outside. My Adidas track shoes seem to have grown to cavalry boots, polished bone white to match the uniform, and I thump as I walk, eliciting queries from the kitchen. On the porch, painted blue for the wasps, I stare out at the sear grass, the dried-out fountain, 
the high sandstone curb with its hitching posts, seventy years out of date, like the old man himself. Then the breeze catches at my arm. It plucks me, playing with my hair, finding wrinkles on my face though I am only fourteen. Lifting me by the elbows as if to toss me like a young boy in his grandfather's arms. Then I am airborne. A white zeppelin, majestic as any great-bellied storm cloud. My pockets ballasted with bright nickels and dimes and quarters. Already searching for some house with a loose tooth and an eager child. I may be some time, I shout to Daddy and Uncle Lloyd. Emerging onto the porch, as a grin splits my face, then I steer into the wind, ready to spend a lifetime creating an enamel rain of my own, like Granddaddy before me. There you go. Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. J. Lake. Do pop over to his website. There will be a link on, as usual, from mine at the main site. And who could notice them dulcet tones of our good friend Paul Kajiji? Paul over there, or down there in Australia. Thank you so much. I've been hitting Paul for a couple of tips on 3D animation. My daughter's trying to get into it there. So, Paul, thank you so much, sir. So now we come on to the movie talk section of the show. This is the little new one. I put a little shout out and Rod stepped forward, stepped up to the mark and says, Tony, I'll have a go. So I'll leave you in the capable hands of our good friend, Rod Barnett. Hello, everyone. My name is Rod Barnett. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I've been a science fiction fan all my life. I've often wanted, much like Tony has confessed to here several times, to be a science fiction writer myself, but... Lo, at this point in my life, I've begun to realize that I'm just never going to be that. But I am a huge film fan. I read science fiction constantly. And with that background and with the knowledge that I have a tendency to tilt toward the horrific in science fiction when given the opportunity, I will be your guide for monthly movie reviews here on the Starship Sofa. I'd like to start out with one of my favorite science fiction films of all time, I'm sure that most Starship Sofa listeners that are aware of Hammer Studios know of the company because of their two decades plus of horror films. Easily the premier British horror producers from the 1950s throughout the 1970s, they revisited Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman repeatedly, as well as making a version of The Family Opera, and they even made a zombie film a few years before George Romero directed Not the Living Dead. Always open to finding new fantastic stories to tell, as cheaply as possible, Hammer ventured into many different genres during their heyday, with science fiction going before their cameras only a few times. As with their reinvention of horror characters first filmed in the 1930s by Universal in the United States, the studio tried to find properties that they could adapt rather than create ideas they were not sure would fly. In this search for science fiction, they were supremely lucky. In the 1950s, Nigel Neal wrote three science fiction stories revolving around his character, Professor Bernard Quatermass. They were written as multi-part television plays, and when broadcast on the BBC, they were so popular that Hammer seized upon them to adapt into, into films. The first two were pared down by director Val Guest into the sci-fi classics The Quatermass Experiment, known in the United States as The Creeping Unknown, and Quatermass 2, known as Enemy from Space both of which were huge box office hits, both in England and in the United States. 
Neil was unhappy with many things about the Hammer Productions, not the least of which was the choice of American Brian Dunleavy to play Professor Quatermass, his heroic, brainy, very British scientist. Although the third of these tales was broadcast on the BBC in 1957, it wasn't until ten years later that Hammer finally got around to filming it. Neil was allowed to adapt his own story, and luckily the fantastic Andrew Keir was cast as the professor. All of the Quatermass stories are among the best of intelligent film science fiction, in my humble opinion, weaving scientific theories and speculation into a scenario that seems both plausible and frightening. Neil creates very recognizably human characters, throws them into an outlandish science fiction plot, and manages to make the stories believable and gripping. In 1980, Neil wrote one last Quatermass story for television that has yet to be transferred to the big screen, but with its extremely downbeat ending, I doubt it would survive the process intact. It's a shame because there are a few better examples of smart science fiction than Neil's Quatermass tales. A couple of years ago, there was an ill-fated attempt to refilm the first of the Quatermass stories as a live studio production in much the same way as the original BBC serials were done in the 50s. I'd recommend against checking that one out myself. It's pretty weak tea in comparison to what Neil and Hammer managed decades before. Now, as Quatermass in the Pit begins, by the way, it was also known in the United States as 5 million years to Earth. I guess they had to rename everything. As the film begins, an abandoned subway station in London is being remodeled and expanded for a new rail line when the construction crew finds several humanoid skeletons in the mud. Investigators are called in who determine that the bones are of unknown type of some kind of prehistoric man with a larger-than-expected brain case. As the digging continues, a large metal object is found that at first is thought to be an unexploded German bomb. But when more skulls are found in the object that date back more than 5 million years, Quatermass and another doctor become convinced that it is of extraterrestrial origin. They find historical links of odd complaints about the area it's been buried beneath dating back to the 1700s, and witness a policeman mentally break down while touring one of the nearby abandoned buildings. Once the whole thing is uncovered, a crystalline room is found containing several long-dead locust-like creatures. Quatermass begins to believe that the insect creatures were from Mars, and the object was a spacecraft bringing genetically mutated apes to Earth. When the continued probing of the craft finally activates it, the latent Martian mutation in most of the surrounding population awakens, prompting a violent uprising against the non-mutant descended humans in the city. Quatermass and Pitt is one of the best films Hammer Studio ever produced, and in my opinion, one of the best science fiction films ever made. That's right, I said it. It's the perfect example of a story that starts small and continues to grow until it encompasses the entire planet. That the discovery of a human skull in London could lead to an alien-inspired mass-human extinction is a ridiculous notion, but Neil carefully directs us to that conclusion so that each step is logical and creepy. He carefully piles up details such as the history of the area as a shunned place, the old stories of a devil-horned apparition that has appeared there several times, the odd occult-like symbols inside the spacecraft, and the sinister appearance of the insect creatures themselves, until Quatermass's theories begin to seem incredibly plausible. To me, it is this carefully built backstory that makes this film so fascinating. Pulling together so many ideas as this story does makes the thinness of so much of science fiction cinema truly embarrassing. This film throws so many good ideas around that even the ones they breezed right past could have made a really good film. As an example, 
The concept of the Martians' manipulations of our ancestors' minds is presented as the genesis of our race's occasional mental power, such as telepathy or telekinesis. Just imagine a movie based on that discovery. But cunningly, Neil and his collaborators merely use it to build to his, to his ultimate end. The screenplay for Quatermass in the Pit is not just packed with arresting ideas. It also sports sharp dialogue and a quick pace that director Roy Ward Baker gooses along with great use of both his sets and his actors. I've mentioned Keir in the title role, but James Donald, Barbara Shelley, Julian Glover are all very good, as are the large number of supporting players. Hammer had a huge stable of great actors to, to pull from, and they did very well here. This film really is a joy on nearly every level, and will stay with you long after the credits roll. If you've never seen this film, I urge you to check it out. There's no need to watch the first Equator Mass movies to enjoy this one. And believe me, you will not regret it. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll be back in a few weeks with another science fiction film review. I'll be popping back and forth between older films like this one and more recent ones as they catch my attention. And if you enjoy this, you're making me very, very happy. This is Rod Barnett, signing off until next time. There you go, Rod. Thank you very much, sir. Do listen out next month for another installment of Movie Talk, or whatever you want to call it. Send me your emails, starshipsover at gmail.com. Right then, something very special by our good friend Mark Borman. I'm going to just hand you straight over, and then I'll get back on the boat afterwards and have a little chat as well. Mark, what have you got to say, Squire? Hello, fellow Starship Sofa listeners. This is Mark Borman here from an unseasonably wet Canberra in Australia. Congratulations, Tony and the rest of the Starship Sofa team. The 52nd episode of Oral Delights went out last week, marking one year of amazing poetry, fact articles and fiction from the sofa. What better way to acknowledge and celebrate the year's worth of shows than to hold the very first Starship Sofa Awards, which shall be known as the Sofanauts. The Sofanauts will recognise listener favourites in a range of categories that I'll tell you about in a moment. It will also provide a stellar selection for newer listeners to go back and catch up on. Now, this is a Listener's Choice Award, so we'd like as many people to get involved as possible. The first thing we'd like you to do is to nominate your favourites in the following range of categories. There will be an award for Best Flash Fiction and also Award for Best Main Fiction. And for those categories, we're looking for you to nominate the title and author of your favourite stories. There will also be awards for Best Poetry Contributor, Best Fact Article Contributor and Best Narrator. For each of those categories, we are looking for you to nominate your favourite contributors. As far as eligibility goes, anything from the first Michael Moorcock London Bone episode, right up until episode 52 featuring, again, Michael Moorcock with a portrait in ivory. What have been your highlights in a year of Oral Delight shows? You can nominate your favourites in each of the categories on the online poll, the link to which can be found on the Starship Sofa homepage. Alternatively, you can post your nominations in the Starship Sofa forums. You may nominate as many short stories and contributors in each of the categories as you like, and you've got two weeks to do so. 
These nominations are essentially the first round of voting. Stories and contributors receiving the highest number of nominations will make the shortlist for their category. Each category shortlist will consist of the top five nominated contributors or stories. At the end of the two-week nomination period, the shortlists will be created and placed into an online voting poll where you will be able to vote for your favourite finalists. That just about covers it. Please get on board for the Sophonauts. It would be great to get the opinions of as many people as possible. You can start nominating your favourite stories and contributors on the online poll or over at the forums right now. Please do so. That's all from me. Back to you, Tony. How, how cool is that? Sophonaut Awards. Yes, so our own little community there, we're going to give out some awards to what you think is best fiction, best non-fiction, contributor, everything there. So please, there will be some emails sent out. You know, I've got a lot of emails. If you haven't gotten an email, uh, pop over the forums. There'll be all links, everything there. Drop your vote to see who you think should be in this kind of the final ballot. And then from there on, we will take it further. So looking forward to finding out what you, everyone out there, thinks of which one should be the best fiction, the best contributor. Laura, lot of looking forward to it. Which leads us on to Dead Notes by Ted Kamatska. I'll just give you a little heads up. One, Ted. Ted is a complex interaction between genes an environment. Over the years, he's fed tigers and worked in laboratories. He shoveled coke in steel mill blast furnaces. He now works in research where he earns a living behind the lens of an electron microscope. He lives on the north coast of USA and not far from the beach. Lucky lad. Ted, along with, say, the likes of God Sellers, one of these kind of new rising stars out there of science fiction. So Matt spotted him. Do you know what I mean? They've mentioned them on Asimov's and things like that, so keep an eye out for Ted. Narration today comes from Kate Baker, a mother of three, prolific blogger and perpetual student. She enjoys reading, playing video games, writing and singing. With enough curiosity to kill ten cats, Kate is currently furthering her education in the field of public relations. Her current favourite authors are John Scalzi and Jim Butcher. And if her taste in reading are any indication, she's very eclectic. She follows political and social ideas best described by the late Robert E. Heinlein as she votes according to her conscience. Is not a slave to the status quo and believes working hard is the fire that fuels our souls. And Kate, if you haven't already noticed, is very dramatic. So look out for some more work by Kate coming soon as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Dead Nuts by Ted Kosmatka. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Narrated by Kate Baker. The first to wake from cryo feels it most. These flashes in your head like things you've seen, a serotonin cascade, and the visual parts of your brain go off like a bomb. You think your eyes are open until you open them. Then blinking, rubbing the ice from your lashes, the little round window a hole punched in reality. Black night and stars and emptiness. A vacuum so hard you'll break yourself on it. I wake to puking. It's always the same. And I'm puking like I'm dying, the inside of me coming out around choking screams I can't hold back. When I'm finished, I wipe my mouth and climb from my unit, crossing the room on shaking legs. The metal floor is so cold my feet stick, peeling off layers of skin and dark footprints behind me. I fold my arms across my bare breasts and tuck my feet under me as I sit. The air smells plastic, sterile. I sit naked at the table for a full minute, coming back to myself, giving off cold and smoking waves, still too dead to shiver, too dead to think. I stare through the window at all that nothing beyond the glass. Deep space is the face of God, I tell the ship. The ship does not disagree. Click. A whir of tiny servos. The heating elements ignite and I smell the burn. It reminds me of my mother's old toaster oven in Kenya when I was a girl in a red sarong. But that was before my father died. Before America. It is an irony that the things I want to forget I cannot... I close my eyes and say a prayer. Despite myself, I am relieved. The heaters can sometimes fall out of sync with the wake cycle. The ship was never designed to go this far, or for this long. We are a relic, explorer class, the pilgrimage, and one day the heaters may not kick on at all. It has happened before to two other crews on other missions— And that would be the ultimate irony, to wake up from cryo only to freeze to death. Another click and the ship comes alive, a deeper rattle of machinery, a long hiss, and one of those other thirteen coffins opens. It is John's unit. I try to feel something, some emotion, but that, too, is frozen. The green light flashes, illuminating a face that could have once been handsome, or could be handsome still to different eyes than mine, eyes that haven't seen what I've seen. The man's body is reclined 45 degrees to the horizontal. We all call them coffins now. Beds are for sleeping or fucking. These aren't beds. Sarcophagi, I think, the word fluttering up from some deep place in my mind. I can't remember the word's meaning, but I feel confident it applies. There is so much I can't remember anymore. I lean close and John is already breathing. His head moves, 
short blonde hair thawing in wet spikes on his broad forehead. Then come the dry heaves, mouth erectus, snot like cold syrup making gunshot spatters on the floor as he falls to his knees. So much naked man, and for a moment the memory of us is so strong it feels like everything else that had happened must have been a dream. Hello, John, I say. But John only stares, dim-eyed and stupid and mute. How did we get here, I ask him, and the grief of it all suddenly overwhelms me. This can't be happening, it can't happen like this. His face turns toward the sound of my voice, it is a reflex. I touch his head, and he says nothing and smiles an idiot smile. His eyes now as empty of intelligence as the vacuum beyond the glass. I love you, John. I say and wonder how long it has been true. They call it the little dead. Not sleep, never that. Nobody'd call it that, at least nobody who's done it. Because you breathe when you sleep, your heart beats, your endocrine system continues to secrete, you continue to age. In sleep, you dream. But there are no dreams in cryo, there are no brain waves, nothing. Like deep space is nothing, it is a state clinically indistinguishable from death, and only waking makes it not so. I think about that a lot, about what happens if you die in cryo. I wasn't religious before I started the journey, but here, hung among the stars, religion has found me. I wonder if this, too, is a sign of brain damage. It happened to Mendoza first. She unthawed like the rest of us, only she unthawed dead. And I lost sleep over that one for the next few weeks of the work cycle, wondering when exactly she'd passed. Because that skip had been a long one, longer than anything we'd ever wanted or tried before. As the mission doctor, it was my job to fill out the death certificate for the log, and it seemed unfair not to know, not to be able to document at least the correct fucking millennium a person dies in. But we're all dead in cryo, and only waking makes it not so. That's what we say. And we're all of us Lazari, each one, each time, until that time suddenly when we're not. Like Mendoza. So I filled out the death certificate with the date the skip began. She's been dead for a thousand years, I told Luis as he cried. He looked up at me. This wasn't supposed to happen. She died when her heart stopped the first moment she was frozen. He looked down at her body. He touched her cheek. One wet, dark lock of his hair clung to the side of her face. She's gone through so much already. I thought of my red sarong and of my father. Mendoza's been gone a long time, I said. You're just finding out about it now. Is that what you believe? He asked. That is what you have to tell yourself, I said, about everyone we left behind. Mendoza's laugh was what got you, the way she did it at odd times like she was a little crazy. At twenty-six, we were the same age. She was short as I was tall and pretty as me, though John denied it, even though he slept with her. Zipped into my bunk, she'd whispered, Tell me something about you. What? I asked, not in the mood for games. Some secret. Something you've never told anyone. A pause, and she stretched, scissoring a leg through mine, parting me. Well? I looked at her for a long while. My secrets aren't like yours, I said. I guide John to his feet. He's too damn big to lift, so it's lucky he can still walk. I guide him across the melting frost toward the bunk rooms. He is pliable, suggestible, 
In some vague way, I think he wants to please. Perhaps this is his deepest nature now that everything else has been stripped away. I guide him down and zipper him in. It is a good nature, I decide. Good night, I say. He won't sleep, though, I know. None of us can sleep after cryo, not for days. He'll lie blinking up at the darkness, awake and still and empty. I take the ladder down to the research pod, feeling gravity shift slightly to one side as the Coriolis forces load against the shortened spin arc. The lights come on automatically. In the center, there is no gravity at all. Around me, the entire bulk of the pilgrimage rotates at the speed of a clock second hand. It is a careful process on freezing the cells. I scan the SOPs again to make sure I get it right, but I have trouble concentrating. It's all so detailed. I have to translate the technical language into a procedure I can follow. Writing in the margins, do this, then this, then this. I add little numbers on the side. I write more notes to myself on the dry board. In the corner I see a note from Talier. It could be 500 years old. The maximum bioreduction potential of en vivo cells is proportional to their ability to withstand oxidative stress caused by ionizing radiation, subatomic shrapnel. Tamoxifen suppresses deterministic effects, but only at concentrations toxic to cell life. Stay warm, Ola. Talier. I read that note four times. I do this to make me feel less alone. Next to the note, I write my own addendum. There is no warm here. Ola. I return the dry marker to its Velcro strip, then I begin to work on the 1GF1 cultures that will keep John and I going through the next skip. I didn't start out the sharpest on the mission and only ended up that way. Because the cryo hurts you. It affects your kidneys and your liver and your brain. It affects every organ and system in your body, and it affects everybody differently. You're never really the same person you were before the skip. As the crew's physician, I alone have access to the files. The average IQ for the crew was 159. In addition to our PhDs, we are builders. We're eggheads who do things. We're useful. That is what defines us. By our fourth wake-up, Bram's speech had begun to slur. The vast reservoir of his education, once a veritable inland sea, was transformed into a choppy and dangerous straits, a place of odd currents and unpredictable undertows. After our fourth skip, he started saying pacifically when he meant specifically. He was still Bram, though, and that was the worst part because he was aware of what he'd lost. I didn't cry for Mendoza, but I cried for that. Silently zipped into my bunk, I cried for that. The brain damage is permanent. This place abrades your gifts until they are smooth and flat and nothing, and then it begins to carve you out. By our fourth skip, when the damage had begun to show, I knew I was one of the lucky ones. I knew my decline would be described by a more gradual trajectory. We thought we'd need two skips, maybe three. We thought we'd return to Earth the same age as our children, or perhaps children's children, the pilgrimage packed with valuable scientific data. But something went wrong, something I do not understand. There have been sixteen skips now, and we haven't found our way home. I haven't been able to make myself add up the years. Zapato was the luckiest of us all. He never got the headaches. His genetic roulette will came up a winner. Back home, before we left, NASA had just begun studies on why some people handle cryo better than others. They studied diet and fitness and two dozen other factors, but in the end it just came down to genes. Simple genes. 
simple luck. I used to fantasize about having a child with him. I thought about what that would be like, a little brown-skinned, curly-headed genius, our DNA combined with heading for the stars, the first wave of the new diaspora. We'd wash ashore on our own personal pitcairn, bearing the bounty to the seafloor, and generations later they'd find our tribe a tall, gifted people with great teeth. My Kenyan background, his Inca. Two mountain populations become one, and I think about that too, where we came from originally. Mountain populations have always done the best in the longitudinal studies of cryotolerance. I think of Paul and the puddle of him, and I think about all the things we don't understand about what we're doing out here. I unzip John from his bunk. I'm going to clean you, I tell him. He is thankfully silent. I use a sponge and warm water and wash every inch of his body. When I'm washing John, I try to think of other things. I try to imagine what Earth is like now. I try to imagine the changing cultures, the different belief systems that might have arisen. I want to go home. I want to feel sand in my toes again. I want to talk to strangers. I want to choose what to forget instead of having my mind stripped away from me bit by bit. I want to be warm. I take John's hands and squeeze the sponge across his fingers, letting the water run down his wrists. I always finish with his hands. They are such big hands. Water drips to the floor where I know it will evaporate, joining the ambient humidity of the cabin created by our breath. The human body loses several liters of water a day through respiration. A few hours from now, when I have finished running the instrument diagnostics, the heaters will switch themselves off. That water will condense out and become frost. And then years from now, many years from now, one of the other crew members will step from his coffin and leave footprints across the cold floor. I finish wiping John down, and then I use a towel to dry him. I put his shirt and pants back on. He smiles at me. He makes some sound, but I put my hand to his lips to silence him. I can clean him and feed him. I can change his catheter. I could do many things for him, but one thing I cannot do is stand to hear him try to speak. I take the tube down to the research pod and check on the cells. They are dividing well. They are our own muscle cells genetically altered to produce a growth factor, which helps counterbalance some of the wasting effects of deep space. The cells also produce the factor which allow us to survive the freeze. One GF1 can't be swallowed as a pill because it's destroyed by stomach acid. Even if injected directly into the bloodstream, it's broken down quickly. The best solution, the only solution, is to inject genetically altered cells directly into the long muscles. The cells then pump out a slow and steady supply of the needed protein. I float in zero-G. A slow spin. My arm brushes a wall and my rotation changes. I drift out again. I close my eyes. When I open them, I kick off another wall and sink my Velcro slippers into their slots at the lab bench. I gather my cultures into two syringes. I inject the contents of the first syringe into my left thigh. I inject the contents of the other two into my right. Days pass in the wake cycle, and I spend time at the window watching the stars. Blue shifted points of light. I feed John every eight hours. He chews his food for a few moments after I spoon it into his mouth, and then he forgets, and the food drools out. 
I tilt his chin up trying to get him to swallow. It works, I think. He's taken in some calories. It might be important for the long freeze, or it might not. When I've finished feeding him, I remove his clothing piece by piece. I lay him back on his bunk and I try to make love to him. I do this because I'd hope he'd do it to me if our circumstances were reversed. I do it because I hope he'd try to get some pleasure from my body on this long voyage, if I were a vegetable. I hope he'd give me that to use, at least, to save me from being useless. So I lay him back and try to make love to him. And although I use my mouth, I discover that what I could have done for him, were our circumstances reversed, is a thing he cannot do for me now. I collapse on his big empty chest and hold his big empty head in my hands while I weep. Hours later, I put John's cultures into two syringes and kick off, heading for the bunks and for the coffins. John is unresponsive when I inject him. His eyes are open, but he doesn't flinch. Not a good sign. He should have some reaction. He should feel something. I guide him from his bunk, and together we cross the room to the coffins. Black and shiny like a beetle's carapace, I guide him inside and recline him to forty-five degrees. I kiss his forehead. Sleep well, I say, although none of us think of it as sleep. None of us who have done it. I hesitate before I close the lid. His blue eyes meet mine, and for an instant I feel that he understands, and that he is scared. But the feeling fades quickly, and I know that I imagined it. I close the lid. Each coffin can be activated from both inside and out, for safety reasons. My hand hovers over the pad for a moment, then I place my palm on the screen. Activate, I say. There is a hiss of escaping air, hydrogen sulfide primer pumps into the chamber. The rest is automatic. The computer won't open the unit until it is John's turn to wake again. I cross the row of coffins without looking at them. I climb into my own unit. The smell is sickly sweet chemicals and vomit. The next step is a difficult thing to do if you are thinking about it, so I don't. I recline to 45 degrees. I pull the lid down, and the screens come to life, lighting the darkness. I take a deep breath. And here it catches me, the weight of what I'm doing. It is always the same each time. We are all dead in cryo, and only waking makes it not so. In doing this, putting my hand on the pad is the same as killing myself. Again and again. I have done it so many times now. I am a mass murderer of myself. I slow my breathing, close my eyes, and place my palm on the pad. Activate, I say. There is a hiss of escaping air, and the hydrogen sulfide burns my nose. I take a deep breath, letting the chemical fill my lungs. Cold falls like a hammer. I wake to puking. It is always the same, and I'm puking like I'm dying. The inside of me coming out around choking screams I can't hold back. When I am finished, I wipe my mouth and fall from my unit. The cold floor burns my knees. When I feel strong enough, I stand, leaving a layer of skin behind where I knelt. I move across the room on shaking legs and sit at the table, waiting for the heaters, waiting to come back to myself. There is a click, then a whir of tiny servos. Heat pumps from the vents, and a few moments later I hear a hiss and one of the coffins opens. It is John's unit. 
It is supposed to be a random shuffle. It is John's unit. This does not seem possible. I cross the room, leaving footprints in the frost. I look at John in his coffin, and his hair is thawing in wet spikes on his broad forehead. Then come the dry heaves. He lacks the strength to turn his head so the puke dribbles from his mouth. I watch him start to choke, his face contorts, mouth frothing. Tears stream from his empty eyes. It is a reflex. There is no sadness in his tears. I reach toward him and gently move his head to the side. Puke spills from his open mouth and fouls his box. His head rolls mindlessly on his jelly neck. He breathes. I step back, confused about what to do next. I look at the coffin next to John's. It is empty. I find him naked in the research pod frozen to the wall. On the dry board, he's tried to write something, but it is meaningless scribbles. Somewhere across the bridge of time, he lost the ability to write. He'd lost the ability to do his cell cultures. In the end, he'd forgotten even to climb back into his coffin. And when the heaters kicked off and the temperature finally dropped, he'd frozen to death. I move close and look into Talir's icy, empty eyes, and I see my own reflection. I climb the tube back up to the coffins. Talir's unit is still wide open. I palm into the computers and check the data screens. It takes me a long time to understand what they're telling me, and once I understand, it takes me a long time to believe it. I look at the coffins, black and shiny. There is John, breathing. I see his chest rise and fall. The others are all dead. They've been dead. They've been dead for a long, long time. I try to guide John from his unit, but he won't move. His pliability has come to an end. John is unsuggestible. I pinch him. I slap him. He does not respond. He does not smile or make eye contact. He doesn't try to speak. I leave him in his coffin and I go back down to the research module. I try to read the SOPs, but it is like trying to think through mud. I can't keep the sentences straight. I see my notes along the margins, do this, then this, then this, and that makes it a little easier at first, but the ideas keep slipping away. I leave the cell cultures out to thaw. I remember that much, at least. They must thaw. I climb the tube back up to the cabins, looking out the port window at all the nothing beyond the glass. Mendoza stopped laughing long enough to take another sip through the straw. The shit you say, she said. I mean, have you thought about it? I asked her. No. If you die in cryo, when would your soul leave the body? You're saying if I believed in souls? Yeah. Then I don't know. It was Mendoza at her most dismissive. When you die, I guess. But you're dead the moment you're frozen, I said, and only waking makes it not so. I don't follow you. Cryo is a state indistinguishable from death. So? So does the soul leave at the moment you're frozen? Does the soul somehow know you'll never wake up? The expression on Mendoza's face changed. Or does the soul linger, I added 
trapped in the ice for years and only departs when you're thawed and don't take that first breath like you're supposed to. I don't know. If you believed in souls, it could be either, I guess. It can't be either. It'd have to be one or the other. You're talking crazy. None of this matters. It's not real. It matters to me. I leaned over John and watched the rise and fall of his chest. I'm two months older than he is. By our eighth skip after Zapato's death, I'm sure that he made me the oldest human being in the universe. I wonder how old I am now. I lean into John's box and kiss him. I close the lid. My hand hovers above the activation button, and I consider not pushing it. It is not life he has. I'd want to be dead. I consider letting him die because I'd hope he'd do it for me were our circumstances reversed. But I cannot. My hand pulls back, closes into a fist. It is anger and hurt and worst of all this knowledge. I am not doing it for him. I'm doing it for me. Because if he dies, then I am alone. If he dies, I will kill myself. Like Zapato. Because I can't face this emptiness by myself. The cold face of God beyond the glass. I palm onto the computer and check the computer's navigational records. It takes me a long time to do this. It takes me a long time because I'm no longer good at using the computer. Because there are a lot of records to check. We've come further than I ever would have dreamed. The distance involved is so large that it is merely a number. I can't comprehend what it truly means. The time, though, the years, it is something I have some grasp of, if only in a vague sense. I understand the years in the same way I understand geolithic history. I understand it in the same way that I understand dinosaurs once roamed the Earth. But they are all dead now. Dinosaurs, they are all gone. Like my own species must surely be gone by now. But I am still here. I check the navigation charts and see where the computer wants to go, but I am so tired. The pilgrimage does not get tired. With the right push and time, she could go to the end of the universe, drifting dark and cold, momentum like a hammer fall. I think of the ice. A memory that's forgotten itself, the way it feels to freeze and die. I want to remember it. This is what I do. This. A course change. I think about my soul and the end of the universe. The Big Bang exchanging places with the Big Crunch. All matter and energy coming to an end. And when would the soul leave the body? Does it somehow know you'll never wake up? Because we're all dead in cryo, and only waking makes it not so. The computer makes me verify the course twice. The time to destination is longer than the universe has been in existence. Deep space is too long a night and I've charted a course that can only be described as a way. I think about the end of all things, Judgment Day, and I'm still not sure what I believe. But there is no end to the course I've set, that much I'm certain of. There's nothing to wake me when the journey is over, because the journey will never be over. I kiss John's forehead for the final time and close the lid over his unblinking eyes. I hit the button, and there's a hiss of escaping air. I will see you on the other side, I say, 
It only takes a second, and I'm the last human alive in the universe. I stare at the coffin, and an idea floats at the edge of my consciousness. I want to write it down before it slips away. But then I know it doesn't matter. All that matters is that I was wrong. I'm suddenly sure of it, though I can't remember why. The soul knows. Somehow it knows when you'll never wake up, and it leaves the moment you're frozen, the moment you die. I cross the row of coffins without looking at them. I climb into my own unit. The smell is sickly sweet, chemicals and vomit. The next step is difficult. I take a deep breath. My heart is beating hard. If there is a God, I'm about to meet him at the end of everything. The surface of the pad is cool on my palm. What a story. Ted, thank you so much for letting Starship Sova get that story narrated. Links on site two, Ted's site, do pop over there. And Kate, what a great narration that is. Thank you so much. Again, do look out for more of Kate's work in the future. And I think that wraps up Oral Delights, number 53. Again, do try and take part in the Sofa Note Awards. It's really nice and, you know, it just kind of gets everyone involved a little in their own little way. That would be helpful. And to actually see if we're doing anything right, who's a good writer, who's not. So, until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.